0: Welcome to the Homeland Heroes Salute, a podcast dedicated to sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. We are your hosts, Phil Taub and Dave Tilly. Hi there, this is Phil Taub. Welcome to the Homeland Heroes podcast. It's great to have everybody back again. Uh, we're missing my partner in crime, Dave Tilley, so I'm going solo on this one. But we have two guests today, Jim Spots. Uh, is joining us, who previously was on episode, uh, had his own one on episode 54, which I know a lot of you heard. And Bob Hendrickson is joining us as well today. And this is a very special podcast because we're we're going to really specifically hone in on the events surrounding massive earthquake uh, back in 2010 in Haiti. So some of our listeners may remember that there was a catastrophic. magnitude earthquake. It struck Haiti late afternoon on Tuesday, January 12, 2010. The epicenter of that was about 16 miles west of Port-au-Prince, which is Haiti's capital. And an estimated 3 million people were affected by that earthquake. The the estimates are a little unclear on on, uh, how many casualties there were. I think we're estimating, you know, today 220,000 people uh, were killed, although the estimates are somewhere between 100,000 and 316,000. And then another 300,000 people were injured, a lot of them uh, very severely. And so the response to that 2010 Haiti earthquake, you know, included a lot of governments, you know, not-for-profit, for-profit businesses from around the world, came into Haiti to coordinate humanitarian aid, right, trying to help the Haitian people, you know, recover from that devastating earthquake. And uh, right in the middle of this were uh, three Coast Guard cutters, Ford, Mohawk, and Tahoma, that were already on patrol in the Caribbean. And they were some of the first responders to that disaster. So today on our podcast, we have two of the commanding officers of those cutters the mohawk and the tahoma and so uh i want to introduce each of our guests we'll go in sequence here and uh ask each of you to say hi to our audience and tell us a little bit about your background uh, it really is a great privilege to have these two very distinguished uh retired coast guard officers bob hendrickson bob we'll start with you uh, welcome to the show and uh, tell us a little bit about your career
1: Thanks very much, and, and thanks for having me here today. It's, it's really an honor to be with you. Um, yeah, so I enlisted uh, like a lot of kids do when, when I was 17 years old, uh, back in 1981, uh, did 39 years in the Coast Guard. I was an enlisted man for the first 10 years of my career, and uh, couldn't make Chief Petty Officer, so I took the path of least resistance and went to Officer Candidate School. Uh, As an officer, I had uh, command of uh, four different uh, units, uh, a patrol boat, uh, Cutter Mohawk that we're gonna be talking about today. Uh, I also commanded Coast Guard patrol forces, Southwest Asia and the Middle East for a year. And uh, my final command was Coast Guard Cutter Weishi, one of the new uh, national security cutters based out of Alameda, California. I retired from the Coast Guard in Washington DC area back in 2020, and that's my career in about 10 seconds.
2: Yeah,
0: no, thank you, Bob. I know that's not easy to sum up. Uh, we we did a whole episode on uh, on Jim spots. Again, episode 54. If uh, folks have not heard it, it really was a terrific one. But Jim, for our listeners that have not heard your episode yet, maybe just give us a couple of minutes and welcome to the show. Hey, Phil, thanks for having me
3: back. Awesome to be back. Um, so I started off in a, a few years after Bob enlisting in 1984. I took a different path to commission. I went to the academy. I'm a 1992 graduate. Uh, pretty much spent most of my time bouncing between afloat units, uh, in, intelligence jobs, and international jobs. Um, so I, I had uh, uh, served on I think four ships. Um, I had served overseas in a couple embassies, and uh, had uh, a few intelligence jobs. I ended up retiring out of uh, Alameda, Cal, actually out of San Antonio, Texas in uh, 2016 and came back here to New
0: Hampshire. Thank you, Jim. So uh, you got the hot seat, I'll start with you. Um, tell me what you were doing when the earthquake earthquake struck and what you were tasked with doing next.
3: So this, this is an interesting, uh, interesting case. We were actually um, doing small boat operations in the in the Caribbean. And we were supposed to be about 400 miles to the west uh, going down through the Yucatan Pass. And because of weather, we got pushed to the east, uh, closer to the Windward Pass, which is right off of Haiti. And we were uh, doing some small boat training and we popped a sponson. Um So that's one of the, the inflatable tubes on the side of a small boat. And so as that happened, we started heading back to Guantanamo uh, uh, Bay, Cuba to do some repairs. Uh, when I was, we actually heard about the earthquake. Um, I was having a beer with another, uh, CEO of a cutter, Diane, when I, uh, in Gitmo, when we were getting, uh, get, got notification. And, uh, the first thing they told us was, uh, you need to get back to the ship. We have a tsunami warning. Um, so while we were in Gitmo, um, uh, I, you know, I said, yeah, we're going to get tasked with this, you know, response to this earthquake pretty quickly. And, uh, Uh, Gave the gave the word to the crew and basically asked them to go out and get what they could for medical supplies uh, before we left the next morning uh, after our repairs were completed. Um, So in Gitmo, the the Navy and the civilian personnel were very good to us. They gave us all the medical supplies that they could spare. And uh, uh, the crew at Tahoma really basically stocked the ship to the, you know, uh, to the rafters. Uh, with every you know every band aid, uh, every uh, every piece of medical supply, you know every type of medical supply they could find, um, we ended up getting underway uh, the next morning and uh, heading heading or actually midday the next day and uh, heading towards Port au Prince.
0: Thank you, Jim and Bob. I'm going to ask you the same question. Tell us, you know, what you were doing when the earthquake struck, and what you were tasked with doing next. Okay,
1: so Phil, I was actually sitting down to dinner. Um, we were underway. We were uh, south of the South Claw of Haiti. So if your listeners uh, know what Haiti looks like, it kind of looks like a crab claw. Uh, and uh, uh, you've got two peninsulas that jut out into the Caribbean. And we were south of the the lower claw, uh, the Southern Claw, and uh, we were I don't even remember what we were doing, but I got a call from our combat information center who had uh, seen the information as a news flash coming across on CNN. Uh, and they called me and told me about it. And uh, we were at the time we were heading east and uh, I looked at the XO, my executive officer, John Driscoll, and uh, we just kind of nodded our heads at each other. And uh, I told uh, I told combat to reach out to our operational commander, uh, Seventh Coast Guard District, let them know that we had information about the earthquake that we were turning around and we were heading toward Port-au-Prince unless otherwise directed. Uh, And that's what we did. We turned around and um, we found ourselves uh, in some pretty heavy seas. So we had to slow down, which actually worked out pretty well because I didn't want to pull in there after dark uh, not knowing, uh, what, what kind of debris or what have you would be in the water. So, uh, we were able to uh, pull in, uh, first thing in the morning, uh, the following day.
0: And, and Bob, when you arrived in Haiti, I mean, tell us what you saw. Uh,
1: just utter devastation. Um, I, for a lot of my career, I had worked in and around Haiti, uh, doing migrant operations and, uh, Outreach to uh, the Haitian Coast Guard, and so I I knew Port au Prince Harbor like the back of my hand, which was very helpful because there was no aids to navigation on station there. Um, as we pulled in, I knew that there was a church downtown that I could look at and line up with another object back behind it, and that was a clear path uh, to get in and to get close to the beach. Uh, our tasking. Uh, was to anchor one mile off of the airport and uh, take over air traffic control duties and uh, to start to render aid. Um, You know, the the Coast Guard has uh, uh, a number one rule for their commanding officers, and that is on-scene initiative. And uh, one thing that we excel in as a a service is Measuring up, what uh, what needs to be done, and then getting after it uh, using on scene initiative, and that's what we did. Uh, but uh, just utter devastation in in border
0: uh, prince. And some uh, some of our listeners may be surprised to hear you say taking over, you know, um, air traffic control. But is that is that just something you guys are trained to do?
1: Yeah, we have air direction controllers uh, as part of the crew. Uh, And so we're able to monitor an air search radar and we're able to uh, uh, direct flights. Most of the flights coming in by that time were just military. So uh, we had their frequencies and uh, most uh, commercial traffic that was due in was getting rerouted over Santo Domingo over the Dominican Republic.
0: Got it. Okay. So, Jim, I want to go back to you, uh, Bob, you know, Bob's on the Mohawk, you're on the Tahoma. You know, tell us about what you saw when you got to Haiti. Yeah.
3: So, Phil, I, I had actually i have been the uh, chief of the military liaison officer office in Port au Prince the year before uh, my Tahoma assignment. Um, and what I got when I got to Haiti, it looked like a completely different place than the country I had left uh, six months before. Um, we had. Left uh, Guantanamo Bay or Gitmo, and we went to survey a couple piers that I knew we would need for logistics uh, north of the north of the city. And uh, a lot of those piers had collapsed. Um, as I got closer to Port-au-Prince, uh, like you, know, like Bob, uh, you know, usually there's church spires and a combination of that and natural features on the on the land that you use to navigate to basically check what you're getting on your GPS. And a lot of those were missing. Um, you know, I, I was pretty familiar with Port-au-Prince Harbor, you know, both on a, both being on a cutter as well as a small boat. And you could literally see buildings where the roof had come down and all four walls had fallen out. And the you know, and, but this wasn't just one story. Uh, this was, you know, two, three stories and a lot of the construction in Haiti is, uh, done very inexpensively with these cinder blocks. So you just saw these just, you know, huge buildings just collapsing. Um, and then there were other, other, like your, uh, small fires everywhere. So you see the, like these little, these little fires with like, uh, you know, with just black smoke coming coming up. And it was either like a little gas fire, or, you know, um, something else that had caught. Uh, it really looked, it really looked like it does just, it just had been blown away. Um, it looked like almost something out of a movie.
0: Well, and, and just give us a sense about the the boat that you're on, you know, how you know, how big is the boat? How many crew members just to give us a sense of, of, you know, what your crew is? So, uh, there are
3: 200, the ships are 270 feet long. Um, you can, what well, used to be, able to see them out of the Portsmouth Naval shipyard. Uh, we have a crew of a hundred and pretty diverse set of people. I think we had, and Bob, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we had 17 officers, eight chiefs and, uh, the remainder were e six and below. Yeah. Um, that sounds right to me. And, uh, you know, we had everything from a combat information center or an operation center that was that did everything from fire control to directing uh, air traffic to a deck force that was in charge of uh, landing and launching helicopters as well as small boats. Uh, we had a large engin- engineering contingent uh, and then you have a small like supply and administrative uh, group that uh, supports the crew members.
1: And I'd say the average age of that crew is probably 24, 25.
3: Yeah. And they have, I would say most of them have less than five years of operational experience. Yeah.
0: And and so what is their Bob? So tell me about that. I mean, it's a young crew, right? And, and what is their reaction to all this devastation, just like seeing it for the first time?
1: Yeah. So, you know, anytime you get into a situation like this, there's, there's just, uh just horrific human suffering and the crew empathizes with that and they feel that suffering and they feel that trauma uh and so um you know God bless them they they just dug right in and they you know we jumped into small boats and we went ashore with jim's crews and um started you know we carried in water and, and medical supplies and got right to work assessing the situation. But you know that that sort of devastation, that that overwhelming number of um, people being killed uh, right in front of you, um, that really that really weighs on people. And so uh, at night when they would come back, we would do a critical incident stress management decompress, where we we sort of talked through the events of the day and and let them sort of take those events. Uh, And and sit with them for a little bit, uh, and uh, talk about their feelings. And I I know that sounds kind of you know um, kumbayaish, but uh, it it really is necessary. It's it's psychological first aid for the for the first aid uh, first responders.
0: Yeah, no, it definitely is. That stuff is is very very important. So, Bob, I'm going to stick with you, right? So you've seen all this devastation and. You found your way, you know, into the harbor and so forth. And so, you know, what. what is the initial response? You know, what are you guys tasked with first?
1: Well, the first thing we did was uh, Diane, Jim, and I met uh, together in person over on Diane's Ship the Forward. And we sort of laid out a plan of action. Um, Diane was going to keep her, her crew uh, and focus on uh, some checking that uh, District 7 wanted her to do. And Jim and I were going to load up our boats and uh, move into the Killick Coast Guard base, Haitian Coast Guard base, and start seeing what we could do to set up a trauma center and uh, start distributing as much humanitarian aid as possible. So uh, Jim and I were basically wet at the hip for for uh, the week that I was there, and we just we worked in concert with each other. Um, covering down on different things, but always talking to each other and, and uh, synchronizing our, our uh, operations.
0: That's awesome. And and so talk about some of the challenges now sort of in the early going here. I'll stick with you, Bob.
1: Okay. Well, I think one of the biggest challenges that we had uh, was, and this is going to sound strange, but one of the biggest challenges that we had was the overwhelming international response. Um, everybody wanted to come to Haiti and everybody wanted to help. And, you know, that, that's really awesome. And uh, the, the international response was amazing. The challenge though is, is that everyone wants to land at the airport at the same time uh, and nobody brings their own infrastructure with them. Something as simple as uh, food. Water, electricity, a place to sleep, there wasn't any of that, and if you didn't come with your own water, if you didn't come with your own tent, you needed to turn around and you needed to move off to someplace else that had those things, because uh, Jim and I didn't have any despair. So, uh, you know, the, the government uh, and non-government organization response was amazing, but it was also challenging at the same time.
0: Wow, that is fascinating. Um, and, and Jim, what about, you know, what, what did you see in terms of some of the initial challenges?
3: Yes. Uh, Phil, so what I did, you know, first thing I did is uh, I tried to reestablish those contacts I had, had from my time as the uh, chief of the military liaison office. And I tried to reach out to the people running the uh, uh, the United Nations clusters. Um, so when you have a, a huge disaster, so in, let me back up just a second. Um, in 2008, there were actually four tropical cyclones that hit Haiti, and no one really remembers this because it was overshadowed by the earthquakes and uh, earthquake in 2010. But it was it was almost kind of like a warm up for uh, 2010. Um, the UN forms clusters and they try to work with the host nation. And within those clusters are kind of everybody who has an interest in whatever function that is. And the clusters are are usually based on function. So you have like a food cluster, you have a you know a medical cluster, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, what we were finding is that uh, because the devastation was so widespread, that uh, none of the UN clusters were really functional for the first few days. Um, and trying to get any information out of them. Because, uh, uh, you know, we Bob and I both had some security concerns for our crews uh, and just trying to get like, you know, what's the security situation outside the wall at the kill a, uh kill Coast Guard base. Um, trying to get that type of information was almost impossible. Uh, the other challenge was, is that uh, as Bob was talking about, the the overwhelming initial response Uh, No one really had time to categorize what was coming into the country and trying to match that with need. So there were a lot of resources that were sitting waiting to do something and trying to get that information to the people who could use those resources was very challenging. Um, The second thing that we really found challenging was uh, finding orthopedic surgeons. so I, I I got lucky on this one. I had reached out to a, a couple of friends in mine that worked for an organization called Real Real Hope for Haiti and Cazal, which is about an hour north of Port-au-Prince on the bay, and uh, they said that there was a uh, some orthopedic surgeons in a hospital that was unaffected uh, up near the north coast. Um, so we got we got really lucky finding this resource. Uh, now, all we had to do is really get the, the lift to get the people who were injured in Port Au Prince uh, up to those resources.
0: Well, and so, you know, my understanding is that, you know, you know, you and your crews had to be really innovative, um, you know, in, in dealing in these extreme circumstances, Jim, I'll stick with you. I mean, give us some examples of some of that innovation. So the
3: first one was the crew's ability to use Google Earth uh, with people in the states and then other entities within Haiti. So, um, you know, the military information technology systems are somewhat closed off uh, from the rest of the Internet. So and you have very fairly uh, limited uh, bandwidth underway. But what these guys would do is they would actually get on the phone with some like a missionary group in Indiana who is talking with the people that they knew in Haiti. And what they would do is they would start out uh, on like a common point on Google Earth. And then they would walk my crew in on where the exact point was that we needed to go pick somebody up that, you know, that was in or injured. And the, the latitude and the longitude at the at the bottom of the Google Earth screen. A lot of these folks were saying like, well, the Google numbers say, you know, positive, whatever, negative, whatever. And that would be the latitude and longitude We uh, the crew would fly a, a helicopter on. Um, so just, I mean, just like kind of that, you know, they they figured out, you know, how to get the information in a common format so that a civilian, you know, someone who had no experience with disaster response operations or... Helicopter operations or the Coast Guard, that they could talk to our folks, and then we could translate that into basically a mission plan for a helicopter to go fly and pick somebody up who was severely injured and get them to a hospital. Um, and they did this repeatedly, and it wasn't just you know it wasn't just Google Earth. Uh, you know another uh, another place that they really uh, you know I've never been so proud of a crew uh, was their ability to get in and help the medical personnel because. Uh, Bob and I had uh, uh, really two trained corpsmen, and then there were uh, just a kind of a, uh, a, just a few other formally trained medical personnel inside the trauma clinic. And our guys would just basically, you know, whatever needed to be done, whether that being, you know, holding an artery so a guy didn't bleed to death, uh, they would just step up and do it. Um, so I mean, just just. Watching these young people uh, do whatever was necessary to get the job done was just really impressive.
0: Well, that's amazing, uh, Bob. I want to ask you the same question. You know, uh, give us you know an example or two of some of the innovation you saw from your
2: crew.
1: Sure. You know, just kind of to dovetail on what Jim had said about um, getting coordinates. Um, our our ship had a website uh, and, uh, people could access the website and there was a link to, you know, send the CEO an email. Um, and so my email started to blow up, uh, once the names of the ships got released by the media as to uh, who was there in Haiti, uh, people were Googling the ship. They were finding our website. They were finding the link to my email. And so I started getting emails, uh, reporting pockets of survivors around, around Haiti. And and we did the same thing. You know, we, we would send helicopters out to either pick them up or to uh, provide them with some food and sustenance and and water and stuff. And until we could get somebody out there to pick them up. Um, In, in other, in other ways, uh, medically speaking, because most of the, most of the injuries that we saw were either uh, traumatic, uh, just People having their arms ripped off, um, or crushed, or broken. The uh, the two hundred seventy foot cutters have false ceilings. Uh, unlike most ships, we've got these these sort of thin metal uh, plates in the ceiling um, to make it very very streamlined and attractive. Uh, and we the crew is taking these things off and uh, turning them into splints. Uh, for broken limbs Um, at night uh, when we would bring the crew back and we would do that decompression that I talked about, then the crew would spend about an hour with my corpsman learning how to give injections by injecting salt water into oranges. And it was the funniest thing watching, you know, 20 people on the mess deck giving oranges a a shot. Uh, But uh, yeah.
0: Wow. And you know, I, I know that the three cutters, in, you know, you're all coordinating, but, uh, you know, are you basically on your own in the middle of all of this? You know, yeah, there, absolutely. Yeah, you
1: know? absolutely. The, the on scene initiative uh, directive from the Coast Guard, you know, Coast Guard Directive One, on scene initiative, uh, just sort of takes hold. This isn't something that you can train for or plan for. Um, and we certainly hadn't uh, gamed this out until, uh, until we started to. To get the call, and I started to communicate by email with Jim and Diane as they were on their way, and we were on our way, and um, and then we sort of gained it out once we got together uh, on board Diane's ship in Port of Prince Harbor.
0: Right. Well, Jim, I want to go back to you because I'm sure there were some really, you know, tough moments. Uh, it sounds like the crews, the crews, were doing exceptional work and making everybody very proud, but I'm just sure that devastation, you know, there was a lot of tough stuff, you know, maybe tell us a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, Phil, Um, couple, a couple well, a couple three stories stick out. Uh, the first one was uh, this little baby girl, you know, probably, well, maybe a toddler. She was, she was maybe much older than one, uh, but she came into the trauma clinic, just completely coated in blood. Uh, just head to toe. I mean, all you could, you know, it, Again, kind of looked like something out of a movie, and um, uh, a couple of guys just started, you know, wiping the blood away, trying to trying to find out what was wrong with her because they were like, "Gosh, she's really got to be severely injured." And um, it turned out that she, uh, she, her parents had covered her up as the building around them collapsed, and both her mother and father had been killed. Um, so you know, the kid just kind of, you know, kind of looks at us like, "What's going on here?" Uh, you know, got her cleaned up, got her some new clothes. And then, uh, basically, uh, a relative, I think a grandmother had come in and basically they, they just walked away. Um, and they just, had kind of accepted, accepted the parents' death. Um, the other, the other, uh, the other one was, uh, uh, I think it was a day or two or three. There is a seven-year-old boy that uh the chaplain on sea had been administering last rites to. And uh his mother kind of she really was sat you know, really bereaved. And uh she tried to drown herself in uh, you know, poor Prince Harbor water. And uh, a couple of guys from from our crews went in and grabbed her. And uh, you got to understand that Port-au-Prince Harbor at at, uh, that particular spot is uh, probably not much better than the average New Hampshire septic system. Um, And, you know, they just without hesitation, they went in and grabbed her out of the water.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing those. I mean, that's tough stuff, uh, you know, to think about and you know, but it's in, I think it's important, you know, for those of us that are, that were not there, right, to just get a better understanding. And so thank you uh, for sharing those stories. You know, Bob, I want to go back to you. And I was thinking a little bit about you guys just sort of being out there on your own and then all these NGOs coming in and <clears throat> sounds very, you know, chaotic and, you know, you guys are doing your thing. You know, I'm sure there were moments when, you know, Things probably got a little heated with various groups, but, you know, uh, talk about like putting aside differences and, and working together in really adverse uh, circumstances.
1: Yeah, well, you know, um, there were a couple of instances. Uh, the, the first thing that comes to mind, uh, Jim had mentioned the uh, United Nations mission that was there in, in Haiti. Um one of the groups was a group of peacekeepers from Sri Lanka, uh, and they were camped in the vicinity of uh, the Killick base. And they had uh, they had lost their higher command. Their higher command had been in a building downtown that had collapsed and basically killed them. And um, so these guys were pretty pretty much rudderless at that point. We were able to communicate with them. We were able to get them to work with us and setting up a security perimeter around the the trauma center and and, uh, help us out with uh, getting transportation in and around town, uh, back and forth to the airport was really the big thing for us. And uh, that was really amazing. Um, And just the way the two crews completely meshed together, uh, eventually we got some Navy doctors and, uh, we just meshed together, everybody, uh, with a, a singularity of mission and a singularity of focus. And there, there was, there was no infighting. There was no bickering. There was nothing. It was just, we know what we have to do and, uh, let's get it done and let's work together to do it.
0: Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. And Jim, same question for you, you know, tell us about you know, groups working together in these very adverse circumstances.
3: Phil, I think the the big one was just kind of the informal networks inside of Haiti. So, uh, you know, there was a lot of missionaries, and they have these small clinics uh, throughout Haiti. And then there were a lot, you know, other people, you know, business leaders uh, inside of Port-au-Prince. That you know, uh, the guy, like the guy who who ran the brewery. Uh, just basically started using his trucks to bring water wherever it was needed or bring supplies wherever it was needed um and just watching everybody kind of patiently uh, put down you know what resources they had and then trying to make sure those resources were used effectively uh, where there was need um uh, the the folks uh, you know, Haiti's you know, Port-au-Prince, Haiti's a very, uh, it's a very challenging environment to work in uh, because, you know, there's just abject poverty. um, And there is, there's definitely kind of a a caste system between the have and the have nots. Uh, This was one of the times where if this, uh, the earthquake was uh, indiscriminate and who it affected and uh, watching everybody, whether you came from, uh, you know, the the more wealthy class or the poor class, everybody was helping everybody else out. Um, It was was great to see and then just to see the results of what these folks were able to accomplish in this environment.
0: Yeah, it it restores our faith in humanity right in the in the worst conditions. I, Jim, I asked you about some tough moments, you know, what about some lighter moments uh, for, for you and your crew? Tell us some stories there. Okay. So the one that comes to mind is uh, we had uh, two storekeepers, which is, which is our supply, you
3: know, our supply guys on the ship. And uh, we were starting to run out of supplies at the, uh, uh, at the trauma center that Bob and I uh, got going. Um, And so i Talking to the storekeepers like, hey, listen, we need you guys to go to the airport. Here's a list of everything we need. Go scrounge it. Just get it wherever you can. Uh, put it, you know, put it, find a find some place that you can store it. And then we'll send a helicopter back for you. Uh, it might be tomorrow before we get around to it. So bring a toothbrush. And uh, you, you got to understand these guys, you know, these are storekeepers that are on a ship. Uh, They're not really used to, you know. I basically sent them into Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Uh, Right. You know, they're they're thinking like, you know, what's what's the captain doing here? You know, this place is probably pretty dangerous, or uh, you know, and but just to look on their face of you got to be, you know, you got to be effing kidding me. And uh, so they got on the they got on the aircraft, and we sent them out, and they and we I think we had told them you know find a way to email us after you get everything, Um, and. You know, God bless these two guys. They went out and they did exactly that. And they spent the night and they came back the next day and they looked like they had basically spent the night on a tropical island in the heat without a change of clothes. Uh fortunately, they had a toothbrush. They came back and they got everything. Uh, everything or our, our trauma clinic needed, plus a little bit um, and just did a fantastic job. So they were I, I've never seen, I don't think I've ever seen two people more happy to come back on board the ship.
0: Right. No, I'm sure they were, right. It was a welcome sight. So that's, that's awesome. That really is good. And then, you know, so how long uh, were you guys there? Is that like two months or, you know, wh- what is the the duration of that? So uh, Bob and I were both there about a week, uh, probably I think
3: eight days or so. Okay. And then uh, right after this, uh, basically. So, uh, you know, as we were, kind of start, you know, winding down from that initial response. Uh, Department of Defense had really ramped up and they were coming in. Um, uh, USNS Comfort had come in and they had they, along with uh, two or three other Navy units, had really taken over the trauma clinic at Killick. So at that point, you know, we had trade medical medical personnel. They had left. I think uh, Bob's crew had set up uh, an air, you know, basically a, uh, like a little air, air facility, an air fac almost. Yeah, yeah, helo fac, yeah, yeah, helo fac, and you know, uh, so Department of Defense kind of came in and they just they started taking over. And you, you got to remember, these guys come in very heavy compared to us. Yeah, you know, we're coming in with one helo and two small boats. They're coming in with like nine helicopters. You know, multiple small boats. You know, floating hospital and uh, other things. So. Yeah, you know, our our utility at that point was diminishing, um, and so we just we just started turning turning operations over to them.
0: Yeah, so the Coast Guard, you know, you guys are the almost like the quick response force, right? You're there on the spot, in just the worst conditions, right? Right after things have happened. I always felt like, you know, in the United States, and and Jim, you you know, I grew up in Africa, in a third world country, right? And I you know I know what it's like to live in a world country and you're kind of on your own, but in the U.S., I always feel like if there's a disaster, you're kind of on your own for 72 hours before the help's going to come. And that's a critical, it's a critical period of time. Right. And so there, they, you guys are right coming right in, uh, and just jumping right in and helping. It's, it's really, it's, it's an incredible thing. And hearing about everybody in your crew, just sort of stepping up, you know, trained, but having to do things maybe that they didn't expect to do, right. And being innovative and so forth. So really just amazing stuff. And so talk about, um, I'll stay with you, Jim, you know, so, so what happens next after the disaster relief operations, what, you know, what, what are you and your crew do?
3: Actually, we went back out on a counter drug patrol, got about a metric ton of cocaine, yeah. uh, had a, had a little incident with the Nicaraguan Navy. Um, uh kept things pretty interesting for the next few weeks
0: wow so what a change from for your crew right being being in the disaster to drug interdiction and so how is your crew doing with all of that i
3: i would i would say the crew did outstanding you know i've, I've never been so proud of a group of people um you know we had the chaplain come out we had the critical incident stress management folks come out um i think just because they were you know, so effective and, you know, they were able to really, you know, really get in there and help people. I think that that, uh, that was really a point of pride for them. And I think it minimized the negative effects of what they saw and what they had to deal with. And uh, yeah. I, Bob, I, you know, I, I, did, I think your crew is kind of the same way.
1: Yeah, exactly. Jim, the, the SISM folks did an outstanding job.
0: And, and And so, Bob, so you know what what happened to you and your crew, you know as as you left Haiti?
1: Well, I, if I can, phil, I, I do want to share um something that i I found kind of kind of fun and 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 good oh, yeah. and, and really a good thing. Um, Jim and I had a meeting over on the it was a Stennis, right, Jim?
3: Uh, I was a Carl Vinson.
1: Carl Vinson that's right a big aircraft carrier so Jim and I went over to meet with the the CEO of the Carl Vinson and and really to lobby to get doctors to come ashore they were hesitant to send doctors ashore at that point and so we 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 were working to to get the medical support that we needed and while we were there uh, we got called down to combat information center on the uh on the Carl Vinson which is just a little bit larger than our uh, Combat Information Centers on the 270s, Um, and Jim had a message from his ship that uh, a baby had been born uh, on the deck of of Tahoma, and the look on Jim's face was just absolutely just precious. Um, It was a look of, he was so happy uh, about the the crew delivering a baby, but he also saw his career flash before his eyes. And, you know, to me, I'm looking at this and saying, this is like the good news story of the entire decade right here. Um, but Jim was pretty worried, but uh, everything worked out extremely well with that. And but just just watching Jim's face was one of my most memorable events.
3: Yeah, Bob, you're gonna have um, to after explain we were- to Phil why why it's a big deal to have a baby born on a US flag vessel.
1: Yeah, because it's a little slice of America, and therefore that baby being born on a U.S. flag vessel is a U.S. citizen. Uh, and that can cause a lot of chain reaction and cascading impacts uh, down the line. Now now, mom and dad can be sponsored in by the baby, and um, there's just a lot of uh, immigration implications to, to having a, a, a baby, a foreign national baby, uh, born on the deck of a U.S. Uh, vessel.
0: Right. And do they call that baby Jim spots Were the parents savvy enough to do that? Uh, no, actually, <laughs> so the adult, here, here's the
3: rest of the story. So, uh, you know, we we always try to avoid uh, taking pregnant out women out to the ship if we can. Right. Um, but the baby had been breached and they thought it had passed away in the birth canal. Oh. Um, so the crew, this is one of the times I really should have trusted the judgment on my crew not being there. Um, They brought the mom and the baby out with the intent of, uh, I believe, taking both to Carl Vincent so that the, uh, the baby could be removed and to to save the mother. And while they were there, uh, the baby kind of basically slipped back into, back into the canal and then came out and a perfectly healthy five pound baby uh, was born. Now the baby, mom and baby uh, were taken out to Carl Vincent. And I believe Mom named the kid Carl. So, yeah, one win for the Navy.
0: Right. There you go. The Navy gets another one. No, that that's 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 a great story. You know, it's about about human life, and you know, life is sacred, and it's really it's wonderful stuff. So, Bob, thank you for sharing that story. Absolutely. And and so, Bob, what uh, what happened? Uh, you know, yeah. with Mohawk, and where did you guys go next?
1: So after we left Port-au-Prince, we went to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba to get some fuel and some groceries. We had been underway since Thanksgiving. Uh, so we were we were ready to go home. In fact, I think we wound up getting extended for the week that we were there in, in Port-au-Prince. Uh, but we went home back to our home port in Key West, Florida. And so I guess you could say that we got a got an all-expense-paid Caribbean cruise to Key West uh, after we were finished with the uh, with Port-au-Prince.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a good spot to get some R and and, Jim, what, what about uh, you folks on the Tahoma? Was it a while before you got back or did you get to go back relatively soon?
3: Actually. So we got uh, the, the earthquake in Haiti happened yeah. right at the beginning of our patrol. So we still had another I don't know six, eight weeks. Right. Wow. Uh, until we got home. And then we, you know, of course we're, we're sailing another around the Caribbean. We got a drug bust. Um, We had another, there was a lot of activity in the Western Caribbean at the time, because I think the perception was, is that all the Coast Guard assets were up off of Haiti. So the traffickers were taking full advantage of that. Uh, And then, of course, then we're coming back in, uh, I think, February or early March. And uh, we got, it was so bad, we couldn't come in. We had to go, basically, I think we just had to basically sat on the leeward side of the Isle of Shoals until it uh until it calmed down enough we could get inside portsmouth harbor and more kittery
0: yeah and so you know for the crew you know just going through all of that you know does that just feel like wow that was just a really special deployment you know for everybody i'm sure very proud of uh, of everything the crew accomplished but is it or is it just hey you know this is our job and this is what we do I think a little bit of both, Phil, you know, the, yeah. the Coast Guard
3: crews, you know, they're, they're, they're very good at their jobs. They're pretty quiet and humble too. Um, you know, it's there, it's, it's a little bit of a different ethos than a lot of, a lot of the other services, you know, where they're, you know, their mission is lethality. Um, ours is, you know, ours is more soft power and, you know, saving lives and stopping drugs. Um, it's almost more like being a, you know, a combination of a police department and a fire department at times. Um, the crew came back, they were very proud of what they did, but, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of bragging. And, uh, I remember we were sailing into New York city a month later or so. And, uh, one of the pilots had asked, you know, Are, were you guys one of the ships in Haiti? And, uh, we said, yeah. And that was, that was about it. You know, there was no telling stories or anything else. Right. Right.
0: Amazing. We're very grateful uh, to both of you for sharing, you know, that with us. um, Maybe just give each of you, you know, last word. If there's anything we didn't cover about that story you want to share with our listeners, you know, be grateful uh, to hear. So Bob, we'll give you the first last word.
1: Well, so I think it was just a good example of uh you know the the way the Coast Guard preaches on-scene initiative and and we were able to take on-scene initiative. One of the great things about being a small service is that we generally know each other. Uh, we know each other's strengths. We know each other's areas where you know they we need to buoy them up. And uh knowing Jim and knowing Diane before we got there, it was a great opportunity to to work together and to 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 really make a difference. And uh, I think that's really what the service is about.
0: Yeah, thank you. That's very well said. And Jim, last words from you? I I think
3: mostly uh, I think we really got lucky that it was Bob and myself and our crews. Um, you know, Bob was great to work with. Uh, you know, especially coordinating things. There's never, I would say, there was never really any ego uh, between the two of us. It was just about getting the job done. Our two corpsmen uh, were both out, did an outstanding job, um, you know, running the trauma center at Killick. Uh, And then just generally the crew's ability to work together and just like small things that like, uh, that we, you know, like we decided to do that really made a difference. Like one of the things, you know, it's like, we only had so many people on the beach uh, because if it turned in, you know, if it turned out there were riots, we could get them off in two trips. Right. Um, You just just little things like that, just those little those little planning considerations and those little operational, you know, those operational uh, objectives. uh, It really made for a smooth, uh, effective operation.
0: Really just just amazing. Uh, So much goes into that, you know, thank goodness for the Coast Guard and and Jim and Bob, thank you for joining us on the Homeland Heroes salute. Uh, We're grateful for your service. We're grateful for you sharing this amazing story with us. Uh, You know, and once again, you guys made us proud. So thank you.
1: Thank you, Phil. And thanks for what you do.
3: Thanks, Phil. Thanks for the opportunity, all you do for veterans in this state.
0: Yeah, our pleasure.
3: Thank you.
2: This podcast is a co-production brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation an organization dedicated to the re support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need. And DairyCam, who believes a better world starts with a connected community. To learn more, visit homelandheroesfoundation.org and dairycam.org. Follow the Homeland Heroes Salute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for listening, and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Heroes Salute wherever you listen to podcasts. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. Views expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the Uniformed Services, the Homeland Heroes Foundation, Dairy Cam, Swim with a Mission, Harbor Care, Veterans First, or any other organization.